0: Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. It is that special time of the year known as festival season, and I am reporting from one of the major film events of the fall, the Toronto Film Festival. It runs from September 8th to the 18th, And throughout this year's festival, I will be recording podcasts on the ground with a rotating crew of Film Common contributors and special guests covering all the highs and lows of this year's lineup. So follow along on filmcommon.com. Welcome to the Film Common podcast. I'm really excited to be reporting on the ground from... The Toronto Film Festival. The festival started last week, and we've you know already seen quite a lot of exciting premieres. And I have with me three excellent critics to help us walk through some of the stuff that's screened here—a mix of debutants, veterans, to-be uh, veterans. Uh, Jordan, why don't you start as the as the veteran here?
1: Uh, hello, my name is Jordan Kronk, um, film critic and programmer. Happy to be back.
2: Uh, my name's Anay Prakash, a uh, programmer. Good to be back on the podcast.
3: And hi, my name is Bidatri D. Chaudhary, also a film critic and also a programmer. Happy to be here. And Bidatri, it's your first time yes. on the Film Common Podcast. Yes. Should I be nervous? like guys.
1: Your first tip too?
0: Uh, No, not my first, too. Okay, yeah. No, it's always nice to kind of celebrate a little when we have a a debut on here. Ooh, yes. uh, Thanks, all of you, for joining. We are in an undisclosed location somewhere near the theaters. And I thought that we could start by talking about uh, No Bears, the Jafar Panahi movie that I'm yet to see, but I'm really curious to hear what all three of you thought of it. Also, why I want to talk about it is that apparently there was some glitch during this recent (laughs) screening uh, that I read about on Twitter, and it just, you know, there was some confusion around it, and I'm I'm really curious to know what happened.
2: Uh, Yeah, it definitely contributed to the sort of extra textual experience of that film, which, you know, people don't know uh, they should that Jafar Panahi, along with two of his fellow Iranian filmmakers, is currently imprisoned. And this film is very much haunting in that light. It's about Mm -hmm. his inability to leave Iran, uh, essentially, and, you know, the the sort of dimensions of escape and exile. And to have the film halfway through start glitching and then the DCP die was was definitely strange. People wondered at first, I think, if the glitching was part of the movie, you know, Mm. and then sort of a ha-ha, wonder if the TIFF server's been hacked by, you know... (laughs) The Ayatollah, et cetera, yeah. Uh, but but also,
3: was, yeah, I mean, I was sitting right behind in A and you remember when it died, it was a stylized death, if I may say. It, it, was, it was cool. Like, it, came, it became green, then a little pink, then a little red, and then just it went out, and you we were like, okay, maybe this is art, and we don't get it just mm. yet. Well,
1: yeah. it's a film within a film, which makes is why we're saying it's appropriate, sort of, that it was yeah. kind of glitching out, because the, the film is about Panahi making a film remotely, I guess, in Turkey, correct? Yeah, so he
2: is staying in a village in Iran near the Turkish border and remotely directing a film that's being shot on the Turkish side. Yes. Um,
1: And there's many moments where the you know they break the fourth wall and stuff so by the time it started glitching it was became kind of humorous because it's it glitched a few times and then it didn't die until a few minutes after that
0: mm. so i was right. like oh,
1: okay maybe that was part of the movie but then eventually
0: and someone's like this is not a film not, yeah, <laughs> <not> a <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> yes yeah
2: unless yeah the whole you know the the tiff representative making the announcements the whole thing might have been orchestrated yeah, you
0: know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> who knows maybe. Yeah. so this is his first feature since three faces is that correct he, yeah. we mm-hmm. haven't yes. seen a, a feature from him since then um so yeah what did you, what did you guys think of it, and and I'm also curious how it is different from his past work because he has made films about making films, yeah. making films under constraint, sort of like semi remotely or in hiding. So, what is this film doing in the current context?
1: Is that much different stylistically than his recent? I guess he's made five films in exile, or like uh, you know, so. In that way, it's not that much different, but I guess there is like a new wrinkle in the sense that it's kind of like a self critical film, I feel like, in a lot of ways, from his own filmmaking, because he's like implicated in a lot of the mm. things going on in the film. It, it deals with uh, him dramatizing a real relationship of a couple trying to leave Iran and go to Europe, so they're having to forge passports. Um, so he's, oh, wow. he's, uh, dramatizing their situation and their, the, the f- woman in the relationship grows and like increasingly, uh, unhappy with the kind of dynamics mm-hmm. of the f- situation, how he's portraying them. So yeah, there is a self-critical mm-hmm. dimension to, to the
2: filmmaking. And then
0: that is narrative, right? It's not documentary. Like the woman is it's acting. It's supposed to be narrative.
2: Yeah, yes. okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's supposed okay. to be narrative. To me, right, the yeah. entire, it's always hard to say with Banahi, but to yes. me, this entire film feels constructed. Yeah. For yes. Sure, yeah. And
3: then also I think adding to what Jordan just said is like, there's also a lot of ethical debate about filmmaking in itself. And then of course, as an extension filmmaking in exile Right. and uh, you know, for the want of a better word, how he's like stirring shit up and like making mm. things worse for people around him. Mm. So I don't know if there's like a guilt around that, but again, it could be all staged, but, and I, I will uh cite his son's film hit the road, which premiered last year, I think. And, You know, this idea of the car and people crossing the border and Mm. like how Iran is literally no place to call home anymore. That is becoming more and more apparent and common. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, as a film about the border, there's a moment um, that is really one of the most powerful I've seen in recent memory where Panahi is standing near the Turkish Iranian border and asks, asks someone where the border is. He doesn't know. And they, and they say exactly where you're standing. And he and jumps he's, he's back. He yeah. he jumps back. Uh, and it, God, that was so, to me, that moment was so powerful. Um, there's something, uh, you know, no matter the danger he knows he's in, there's mm. something, um, you know, about an inability to leave the country you know, again, it's it has real world implications because if he had, he wouldn't be in prison right now. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: and then, you know, alongside his seemingly illogical inability to leave, we see um, examples of the damage exile can mm. do through through the couple that Wait, is on the did you say Turkish his side.
0: seemingly illogical ability to leave? Yeah, it, see, in the sense that he choo- he keeps choosing. In the
2: sense that there's no obstacle, right? And
3: people ask him, like, yeah. why why wouldn't you just cross?
2: Right. There are no there this is relates to a line in the film, but there are no bears, right? Yeah. So uh, there okay. there are no there's no there are no guards, no bears, no obstacles yes. in between him and and Turkey, right? He could theoretically mm. just Hmm. escape the country but we see through the couple in turkey and also through another couple in the village he's staying and yeah. I- examples of of um, sort of both the internal and external dangers of of escape yeah. but
3: also at the same time i think the power of documenting it's like you know the villages are after him for a photograph that he may or may not have taken and like you know also speaking to that idea of documenting through film, documenting, documenting through photographs, how important that is to create a memory of a country.
2: Yeah. Right. So in addition to the um, couple he's directing in Turkey, the, there's a this narrative about the villagers, where he's staying, uh, and his tenuous relationship with them um, as someone who is um, filming and, and possibly ex- exposing mm. yeah. them.
1: Right yeah, there's a relationship. He may or may not have taken a photo of this couple. The woman is supposed to be married to someone else. And so he might've taken a inappropriate or document of them together mm-hmm. and the villagers are kind of slowly t- turning on him. So he's like dealing with that. And then also the, you know, issues of making this film remotely. So yeah, right. there's a lot of, uh, moments where, yeah, they break the fourth wall and they start talking to Panahi, like looking at the camera with like a, airpod on Mm -hmm. and they're like start discussing the film and yeah so it's very uh very meta like a lot of his movies are but yeah this one i think is one of his better or at least more like interestingly structured and Mm -hmm.
0: yeah no i mean that sounds fascinating also because i think this is a question that not i haven't seen a lot of filmmakers who do make films under uh these kinds of political constraints Mm -hmm. whether of exile or censorship actually contend with the effect it has on their collaborators because, yes. you know, filmmaking is a collaborative craft. So your personal rebellion is drawing in a lot of people. And yeah. film, you know, you put people's faces and images mm-hmm. out there in the world for everyone to see, to circulate. You know, because also I, w- I was thinking about this the other day. What Panahi has gone through and other filmmakers too, mm-hmm. like Rasulov and, you know, Iranian filmmakers... Russian filmmakers I mean there's so many cases you get so inured to it after a while after a while you're like okay what more do we say about Jafar Panahi and his plight he's been going through it for so many years he's thematized it so many times Mm. it almost feels like I hate to say it but it's like it it, it, you get so immune to it that it now feels like oh it's a school of filmmaking a gimmick or something you forget the real conditions that are enduring and that continue to be really oppressive. You know, we we start to view it as a filmmaking style or yeah, movement. the exile
3: school of filmmaking. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and
0: and what you you guys are describing sounds to me like he's really maybe interrogating that a little bit.
3: Yeah, and then uh, like the flip side of what you just said, Devika is he becomes like this saint or a prophet, right? Like he becomes this patron saint of all who's been censored and banned. And he's undercutting that, that, you know, I'm actually causing so much harm to people around me.
2: Right. right? At the center of the film is a very crucial decision he has to make. Yeah. Ethical decision Mm. with potentially devastating consequences. Um, but I will say, you know, for all of that uh, sort of, yeah, repetition, this, this film felt incredibly urgent to me, you know, Mm. I felt like I was watching, um, significant cinema that had a great, potentially great consequences. That was of great import that, you know, I I felt strange walking out of this, just hearing people suddenly return to normal chatter Mm. and, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was a bizarre experience.
0: Well, I'm going to catch it in the next couple of days, and I'm really excited uh, to see it. But maybe we can talk about another film that's about rebellion. (laughs) I'm reaching for a segue here, but uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which I did Hmm. see last night, and which actually... Um, has gathered quite a lot of buzz here. It was a sold-out screening and, you know, I had to kind of work some strings to to get, like, a balcony seat so I could watch it. It's by Daniel Goldhaper, who made the movie Cam a few years ago, which I actually really liked. It was hmm. about a cam girl and quite an interesting little thriller about sex work, really, and, and you know, digital realities. I know that... Vedatri and Inne, you both have seen it too would mm-hmm. either of you maybe Vedatri you want to tell us a little uh you know what it's about
3: yeah so but let me tell you this like I have this terrible habit of not reading synopses before going into films and I walked into it thinking it's a documentary <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> yeah. actually assume because it's based on the Andrea's yes. text text, yeah. and yeah. the producer Daniel Garber is also a documentary producer so yeah. I I just and yeah. you know an editor, editor yeah mm-hmm. and then like three minutes into the film I'm like am I in the wrong film and then my friend who was watching it with you're me, like this is a documentary but people <laughs> doing cocaine and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like yeah I'm like hmm. wow that's a lot of vulnerability on screen yeah anyway so it's about these um, group of young people I won't say kids and like they do a good job of the diversity ticks so one is a native young boy um a Latino... I would call him a boy, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah. Oh they're my all, God. I'm
0: just... I think they're the, like in I'm, their 20s, I yes, think. Yes, I'm having yeah. my okay, yeah.
3: uh, inner grandmother here, but like a young native man yeah. uh, from North Dakota. Then there is a Latino and black lesbian couple from California, and a Mexican immigrant from California, and um, her classmate at Chicago. So like it's all this group of people who, as the name suggests, decide to blow up a pipeline in yeah. Texas. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And they, as the movie proceeds, it it kind of has this non-linear. I don't know if that's the right word. It's more, it's flashing or, or cutting. Flashbacks, right? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. so it's it begins almost like it throws you into the scene as they're preparing to blow up this pipeline. And then you keep getting these flashbacks, which are timed. Very interestingly, it's always at some like very precarious moment, like something's about to blow up and then they cut you back and give you the backstory for why each of these people Mm. is doing this. And you realize that each of them has had their lives impacted by the fossil fuel industry or, you know, the the immediate effects of basically climate change that is impunitively exacerbated by corporations and the state. Yes. I was a little underwhelmed by it. And I think one of the reasons is that I found it very schematic. Hmm. I mean, what you were saying, Vedadri, yeah. like it ticks off these diversity boxes, yeah. which I, in one sense, I appreciate that it gives you this cross section of all the people, the various kinds of people who could be affect, who are affected hmm. by this, um, you know, crisis that is in some ways the great universal, even though the effects of climate change are um, unequal, mm-hmm. but it is the great universal ultimately. And I I like that it, you know, there's one person whose mother... I mean, this was a a glib one. Her mother died of a heat wave. I was like, I'm sorry, this is the best you could do. Yeah, but also,
3: you know, I think the film would have been so much better without these backstories. I mean, I would still watch it. You know, a group of uh, people just blowing up the pipeline. I would watch it without having to know their backstories.
0: Yeah, like one person has leukemia because of a chemical plant nearby. I mean, each of them has this kind of backstory selected from the headlines, you know, yeah. and it's it just feels a little yeah, a little schematic, a little overly planned, which in, it t- took me away from reality a little bit. And I thought that there's a there's these scenes where they discuss the ethical consequences and questions around what they're doing, which also struck me as a little glib, you know? I mean, it's it's very kind of rehearsed, right? Very yeah. rehearsed and kind of saying things that you would already expect about, you know, I mean, and there are these lines. I mean, there's, there's the Native American character. Um, what's his name? Michael. Uh, Michael. Who? I thought that actor was amazing. Yeah. Incredible. He, he, was, he was really fun. Like, just this... And I loved his straight face. Yeah. Like, are you scared? No. No, I don't care. <laughs> he, he does have this, like, super disaffected exterior. But yeah. he says something like, if the American Empire labels us a terrorist, then we're yeah. doing something good. There's a lot of these kinds of slogan-y little quips. And... I, I just wish that the film, the style is so suited to the the subject matter, like it's young people blowing up yeah. a pipeline, like, you know, crazy little cuts and angles <laughs> and yeah. the music. I almost wish the style had been counterintuitive, you know, like hmm. La Chinoise. like, you know, that's yeah. a movie about revolution That's you don't expect now. I mean, it's a, now we all know what that movie is, but I'm, I feel like when it came out, it was probably surprising to see yes. that movie not have that kind of pulsating urgency. Mm-hmm. And this just felt a little too slick to me in delivering a message that's about revolution, a little too... I just wish it had been a little messier, murkier, gotten really into the weeds of the politics too. It does not get very yeah. deep into and the politics. And it's also
3: singular. It's a singular action. And, you know, we've moved past using metal straws is going to save the universe it's yeah. not a unitary personal journey right and this was a collection of personal journeys which i was and also like you said like this oh are we terrorists or are we revolutionaries it reminded it is, me of like rang which was like 20 years it is ago. literally
0: a decades old debate yes. i mean it's been debated in the u.n like it's you know yeah. i just i wish it had been more contemporary in the in the co- content, but, but I know Ine it is gearing so. up we'll, to, we'll, to our, yeah, yeah i like, is like, i starting
2: to create a checklist. <laughs> All right. So I feel that I, you know, in in interest of full disclosure, I'm friends with the filmmakers. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but I really did like the movie. I thought it was a kick-ass genre film. I think the things you want out of it um, are, It sounds like you just wanted it to be a different movie, and I I understand that impulse, but I think on the terms on which it exists, as a sort of... I wanted it to
0: be a better movie, sorry.
2: (laughs) As a a rocket fuel, but it's not this thing that's getting into the weeds about politics. It is a, a melodramatic, tightly plotted and schematic, sure uh, genre picture. And, and, you know, it kept me on the edge of my seat. Uh, I think it captures well, uh, obviously, yes, in a very different way from something like Les was that, um, that s- sort of, again, yes, glib, uh, youthful idealism, uh, and frustration with the system. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and I agree, you know, that there were, there were, Aspects of these backstories that were a little bit candor, corny, but in a way that I accepted on the film's terms as melodramatic devices. Um, so you
0: just settled for what the film gave you. No,
2: <laughs> I look. I I love. Um, I love. Uh, I think a genre movie is allowed to have uh, genre uh, tropes. You know.
0: Yes, but this is a movie that's taking it. It takes itself pretty seriously too. You're, you know, the way you're describing it makes it seem much m- much lighter and much more like as if this movie is trying to be just entertainment but yeah. it's really it's taking itself very
3: seriously
2: in the it's, conversation it's in the
3: present day so it's not like this is happening in the 1970s and you can look back and say oh they just didn't know enough right but it's yeah
2: no it is trying to be entertaining
0: i i know it is but it's also taking itself very seriously so i i just feel like you know i also do think that when you it's a premise like this. It's about young people taking uh on like basically doing property destruction in order to achieve something with regards to, you know, this ongoing crisis. Mm-hmm. You have to say something, you know, more than what this movie says.
2: Do you? I mean, I think it's pretty bold. First of all, that obviously the title and the premise are quite bold assertions. And it, you know, it's a it, again, it's a genre. It's a, like structured basically like a heist movie except that we have you know, instead of stealing something, they're destroying something, which is Yeah, but feels they
0: talk so much about like why they're doing it and what the consequences will be. But they talk a lot about it, but it never really gets into the weeds of what those consequences or implications are. I mean, yeah. their whole idea is that they're going to blow up this pipeline and then people will get inspired and do the same and it'll, it'll kick off some kind of revolution. Which but what are they doing? They're just slitting tires. You know, like the well, they the, do blow up the pipeline. Yeah,
3: but after that, the the, the quote unquote revolution they inspire is and this slitting.
0: has been done in history. People yeah. have done these things in history, and it has not kicked off a global revolution. Yeah.
2: So
0: I just wish that the film actually yeah, but the film doesn't
2: claim this. that it's going to kick off a revolution. I it, think
3: it does. It does. Though. Though, those though, again, it doesn't not question them. Those young people. Yeah. They're your age with us. Really. I know. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, my inner grandmother. But yeah, those people are v- taking themselves very seriously. Did
2: you not take yourself seriously as a young I or didn't do call myself take...
3: Jesus. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> they literally called themselves okay. Jesus. I mean,
0: yeah, they, it's a, there's... The argument is a yeah. little more complicated yeah, 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 yeah. than that, The one yeah. they made. Yeah, but... I think you have to
2: take yourself seriously to be a young tw- to be a twenty something who decides to do something like that. Okay. Yeah, know? but the
0: film I think shouldn't take them that seriously unless the film is fully convinced and able to convince us of their motivations. And I don't think it convinces us.
2: I think a- any good film about uh, youthful idealism should take its characters seriously, if it, even if it is in. Um, even if it's not um, sort of on the same wavelength as those characters. I
0: disagree because films about youthful idealism are very sexy and, uh, and, you know, marketable. And I think that taking it seriously means also interrogating the limits of that idealism, which I'm not sure the film does enough.
2: It's ultimately a film about people coming together to accomplish something, a a goal, right? Uh,
0: (laughs) Yes, it is a film (laughs) with (laughs) characters who do things
2: together. No, no, yeah, but it's about this kind of camaraderie um, that is enabled by youthful Idealism. But the yeah.
3: subtext is also the government won't do anything, so
2: we will do it.
3: You know, the, it's it's not just they're not just doing anything together. They're
2: yeah, like, exactly. And but yeah. again, this is the this is the worldview of the characters, and I think it is taking its characters seriously in a way that is couched within its role as entertainment. It is again like a genre picture. I think it is meant to be entertaining. Like when you have a, you know, when the characters, two characters are going to wait down the bomb countdown to stop and have sex. I think that's, you know. um,
3: That was so (laughs) cringe. I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) But I think that's a signaling that you're watching a film that is meant primarily to be entertainment, even if it has these larger implications.
0: Yeah. Mm. Well... I think we should move on, yeah. but yeah, I will I also we say we're we're getting kind of uh, you know heated in the debate. But I I do want to say that people should seek it out. Oh I, yeah, you know, for I, sure, I, it, I it is an entertaining
3: add. film, absolutely,
0: yeah. and it's a good, uh, it's a conversation starter as yeah. as as, as, as evidenced by the last ten minutes. Um, and it's about something important. I do think. Yeah, I feel like in my urge to have the last word over Inay, I don't <laughs> I don't want to seem like I'm trashing this movie. But let's move on to something else. Uh, Maybe, uh, Jordan and Nene, you want to tell us a little about the Wavelengths program, the Shorts program uh, that screened yesterday. I feel like Wavelengths is a super exciting section of TIFF, and Uh, people often don't see the Shorts, which are... uh,
1: Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, That's the reason I come here. So, um, yeah, the Wavelengths program is the, quote-unquote, experimental section. Um, It's been pretty drastically reduced over the last... uh, well, definitely ten years, but even in the last like five years, and then COVID almost seemed to kill it completely. But thankfully, it is right. still here, and it is slightly bigger than it was last year. Um, so there's a handful of features, and there's two shorts programs. Normally, there's four. Um, but yeah, the, la- the first shorts program was last night, and there were new films by uh, Dean and Ben Rivers, uh, a co-directed film, and uh, Fox Maxi, Fox Maxi, yeah, um, which I liked, and um, and a couple other ones as well. Push but-
2: to Anishapur yes um, uh, Vin- and vincent Granier.
1: um and yeah it was a, it was a nice program um i don't know if you had any favorites that I stuck mean, out but
2: yeah for, I, I thought it was all really strong work to me the the absolute highlight was uh fata morgana the tacita divina yeah, film that movie, yeah. was originally an installation in um paris and it is you know as advertised as a sort of a 20 minute meditation on the Phenomenon known as Fata Morgana, which is, you know, creates illusions um, in the desert, Mm -hmm. Uh, silent um, and, um, you know, focused primarily, I think, in Utah on what is actually in the distance, a truck stop, but throughout the film takes on the appearance of like a shimmering city in the yeah, distance like or, alien,
1: uh, landscape or something. Yeah.
2: Um, and then, in, you know, there appear to be either clouds or mountains, um, in the film that are again, part of this illusion, uh, uh, vehicles yeah. moving across, uh, which may or may not be, um, real.
1: Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, six, I think it's a shot on 16. Yeah. Yeah. I believe. And, and, and it was projected, projected on, on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, her work is always great. A veteran, um, Otherwise, yeah, I like the Fox Maxi film quite a bit. Although a, yeah. a very difficult time like decoding or like accessing his film sometimes. But, uh, you know, it's uh, another montage work that deals with identity and things Could of that. nature. you maybe say but, a
0: little about uh, what who he is and what sort of work he makes?
2: Maybe that's better for you. I'm not uh, totally... Fox's films are these sorts of um, really energetic. They have almost... Um, I hesitate to say this because they're, they're not music videos. I don't mean to suggest that at all, but they have this kinetic music video energy. Great with, music in this one. Yeah. With great music coming in and out and all kinds of different um, aesthetic elements, you know, that draw on contemporary uh, media. And um, there are so many ideas and visual elements in such a short succession of time that it becomes kind of just this audio-visual river you have to let yourself Yeah. Uh, flow down, um, incorporating elements of, um, you know, indigeneity. Although, so I once talked to Fox who said um, uh, in a in and a Q&A that um, they looked up the term indigenous and in the dictionary and saw that it means to be from somewhere and decided to identify instead as native saying everyone's from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's meaningless to me. Uh, and I think, you know, in, um, sort of keeping with that resistance against generality, this is a film, uh, particularly about the Mesa Grande reservation and kind of a love letter to it. Um, and, um, you know, for me, uh, even if, the film moves too fast to catch all the illusions and all the, um, moments even that, that came across really strongly. Right.
1: Um, and yeah, there's another film I liked in wavelengths that I don't think you saw, but it was a new film by Sharon Lockhart. Um, it was paired with a feature, uh, in the wavelengths program. I'm really which, sad I missed that. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, Not. Super similar, but like the idea of the Tassadieen film. It's a kind of an observational landscape type film. It's one shot. It's about What's thirty. It called? Oh, sorry, it's called Eventide. There you go. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's a thirty-minute shot of like a coast in Sweden, and it uh, is the sun is setting. So uh, over the course of the thirty minutes, it goes from kind of like light to dark, and you start to see there's like a meteor shower going on at the same time, and stars start to appear. Um, and at the same time, there's a group of women start to kind of emerge from the landscape. There's like some bushes and things they are behind and they have their phones and they're have the lights on them and they're searching the landscape. And it's not quite clear exactly what they're looking for, but it's really beautiful, like a uh, meditation on time and this landscape, which, uh, yeah, really is kind of a stunning movie that, yeah, I really liked. So,
2: And, you know, I think it's worth saying, like Jordan, I, I come... To TIFF for wavelengths, uh, mm. you know, for years, um, and I, I think that I heard an official number that the program from its peak has been diminished by sixty five percent. Sounds about right. And it's really um, a shame because it's the it's it's not only one of the most exciting parts of of or to me the most exciting part of TIFF. It's has also been one of the premier sort of avant garde showcases in the world. Um, you know, incredibly curated by uh, Andrea Picard and and uh, this year coke curated with Jesse Cumming, mm. And, um, so to see, um, you know, the festivals, uh, lack of commitment to that is disheartening. I, I think it deserves all the resources in the interest yeah. of, you know, cinema
1: as an art form. And it's unfortunate too, like doubly soak because the section so small, but Andrea is forced to program some films that are not being shown in other programs that don't really need to be in wavelengths. So Something like pa- like a great movie. I love Pacifixion. fiction. doesn't necessarily need to be in wavelengths. It's Neither not does Unrest, yeah, Drive, is. On on Burning. Yeah, these, these films are, don't I need to be them, in an avant-garde section. Exactly. They, yeah. they could go in, in other s- sections. They're,
2: in, they're, some, they're the best films of the year. Yeah, <laughs> They exactly. simply so be in the main slate. At the, the expense best. of other yeah.
1: great like artists' films that... I know of that are out there that I'm sure she would have programmed if she could have, but, or do you not program fiction at TIFF? It doesn't make sense. So she's kind of, a, I think in a bind sort of, yeah. but, uh, right. I
2: mean, so my plea, Cameron Bailey, if you're listening, <laughs> please, uh, is, give
1: us yeah, more wavelengths. <laughs> give us more wavelengths. Yeah. No, I mean, there did used to be like a dozen or 15 features and a four shorts programs. And yeah. there was more, there is an exhibition this year, which is nice, but there used to be a couple kind of exhibitions around at different museums, uh, throughout the fest. But, uh, yeah, hopefully yeah. it'll it'll get back up and going. So if you are here and you listen to this, go to more wavelengths.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I we'll we'll do our bit, and uh, I'm gonna watch the second uh, shorts program tonight. So we'll we'll talk about that on the next pod as well. Maybe we can talk a little about the uh, new Joanna Hogg, one of the you know very exciting titles here that Jordan and I have seen, The Eternal Daughter. I don't know, Jordan. You you saw it? I just saw it right right now. Give us your Um, first impression. (laughs) You know, what's what's in your mind?
1: (laughs) It's a very beautiful, lovely film. Uh, It is a kind of a haunted house, ghost story type film. It's Um,
0: it's a huge film. Huge, very good. (laughs)
1: Um, It stars Tilda Swinton in a dual role uh, as a filmmaker and also the filmmaker's mother. Uh, they arrive at this kind of Victorian-style mansion um, that is appears to be mostly vacant, although they have trouble getting a room. Yeah, it's um, like an
0: inn or a, it's been turned into some kind yeah, of hotel. Yeah, it's like a hotel, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and they arrive there, I guess, under the pretenses that they are sort of reconnecting, but the, Tilda Swinton, as the filmmaker, is trying to make a film about her mother, I think, uh, before she passes away. Um, so it yeah, deals with them kind of reconnecting and getting eventually dredging up some old traumas and histories between them. Uh, but it's just, like, a beautiful, like, aesthetically beautiful film. It's shot on 35. It, like, it's, like, the, the landscape is all foggy all the time, and it just has this very, like, a mid-century, like, haunted feel to it. And
0: it's it's a beautiful gothic yeah. film, I, I thought. It, it, there's just something she seems. I feel like I got the sense that Joanna Hog felt really enamored by the house the architecture the spaces so much of the film is just Tilda, the two tildas yeah. walking through the space getting sort of unsettled by shadows and sounds and and you know the camera is sort of framing yeah, them in different ways and things
1: like that yeah
0: know. and and yeah the camera is just sort of you know i just had this sense that she she it's it's almost like a a performance or something where she's turning, she's excavating what she can aesthetically out of this house, which has so much to give aesthetically. You know, it's yeah, yeah. it's. There's also the way sound works yeah. was especially uh, powerful to me. And yeah, it's a
1: quiet movie, but there's like all these creaking floorboards and the wind and the trees are kind of like you know hitting the windows. And right,
0: yeah. and then the conversations that do take place, which are very few and far in between, and after a while. You know, I don't want to give away too much of the movie, but, you know, you do start to wonder who is real. Yeah, yeah. You know, which of the characters we meet are real? Who's like a phantom or or some figment of, you know, her imagination? And those conversations are so quiet because they're interrupted by these long stretches of silence and, and sound. And then these conversations are this very low volume. There's just this this quietness to the whole film that makes you that lulls you into a state of attention, uh, very attention, but also a state of, you know, haunting, like spookiness. I, And it's, it becomes this film about grief and also using filmmaking or just any art that dredges up memory, but also involves recording because yeah. Tilda, the younger Tilda character, the filmmaker, they're also, are they named...
1: I don't know, actually. I don't think yeah, so.
0: Yeah, I, I somehow can't, maybe I'm just forgetting, but I felt like I couldn't yeah, really I don't remember
1: if they have names, catch or...
0: their names, but she's making a movie about her mother, and it turns out her mother grew up in this house, yeah. so it's really them experiencing the memories that come up while they're in this shared space together, and she often records her mother while she's talking, right. uh, and it's sort of like, I think, putting together these pieces um, from the past and present, in in some kind of a, towards some kind of reconstruction, but the movie is really vague about what she's doing.
1: Exactly, yeah,
0: and it's, that's lovely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> totally.
0: You, you have no idea, like I, you don't know what she's doing, yeah. why they're here. Everything is so vague and suggestive.
1: It's very much a mood piece. It's very is funny it a, though. Too is it a which vibes is, only? Vibe, exactly. I hate
0: you know,
3: that now. That genre <laughs> of vibes only. Yeah. Um,
1: it is. Surprisingly, very funny though. I was like, there's a character who plays like the receptionist or uh, sh- who's like amazing. I don't know her name, but she's hilarious in the movie. She just heck is very uh, I don't know, just short and curt with everything she for says. For the lack
0: and, of a better phrase, she has a resting bitch face, yes, <laughs> a great RBF, yeah.
3: beautiful, and I, she's I, just
0: unsold. She's just grumpy and rude, and it's like, I love her for it, yes. you know. Uh, she's just annoyed at having to deal with. The
1: one guest they have, two guests they
2: (laughs) have. The (laughs)
0: two guests who are very particular. The younger Tilda, she's like neurotic too. And she's constantly worrying about her mother. And there's a scene where they're having lunch. And it just devolves into this fight between mother and daughter where the younger Tilda just like collapses over something simple. Like, I don't know, the mother not wanting to open her presents or not wanting to eat. It's so relatable. (laughs) It it just, you know, these like... They're both grown women, but there is something about being with your mother in yes. close proximity that brings out these completely irrational, unsayable emotions and conflicts, and she just collapses i mean she you know she she just starts crying and she's like throwing <laughs> a tantrum. but I found that so moving and and performed you know incredibly too
1: yeah, the performance is great. I mean, it doesn't come off as like a stunt at all. you totally forget that. It's one actor's playing the same role. But I, I guess it was a you know, pandemic-type movie that might have yeah. been the impetus behind it, but it uses like the conditions and everything to its advantage, I think. And it, yeah, it's just a <clears throat> transporting film. But yeah, it is sort of ambiguous, obviously. And uh, as they start to you know dig into their past, it, it just becomes more dreamlike as it goes along, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I, I really love Tilda's performance, too, because... You know, there are no, she doesn't rely on tics. Uh, You know, you think that to differentiate these two characters, you know, a lot of actors would develop these affectations and the the two characters feel so different even though they're in the same room all the time. You're looking at them, you know, adjacent to each other all the time. But the performances feel very natural, not affected. She's not trying too hard to make them different people. I mean, she's just a very good actress, you know. Uh, And I also like that, this film is very much in keeping with the souvenirs. Uh, you know, it's about clearly sort of personal. It's about some, you know, a filmmaker. It's about trauma and grief and what it means to make movies out of the stuff of your life. Mm-hmm. But in a totally different genre, oh, yeah, it's so sure. surprising, too, because it's completely unlike the souvenirs in terms of style. Yeah, it's a it's a proper horror or gothic movie in yeah, some sure. sense. It, it
1: almost has more similarities with her pre uh Sorry, what's the name of the film? Uh, souvenir pre-souvenir films. Yeah. <laughs> Show so much I like those movies. Um Jordan, are you sorry, an anti-souvenir uh, guy? The first one I dislike strongly, but uh the second <laughs> one is good. Uh, right. I need to leave the table <laughs> well,
3: now. We will not stand <laughs> well, it. It was great. My, my boy, sorry,
1: didn't want to start another argument. But no, uh-huh. her films before the souvenir I really loved, and they were like super formalist like gems. Yeah. This is almost not quite in that style, but like it really uses the uh, house. It like those early films, it uses the domestic space in interesting yeah. ways. Uh so yeah, I enjoyed that kind of Which return. The
0: Souvenir Part 2 does as well, but it not does, to yeah. this extent. I mean, this film is about the house. The house and, you know, I'm sure th- you can turn the house into a metaphor for like a hundred things here. You yeah. know, memory, past, uh, yeah, yeah. the womb, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of things.
2: Do but. you know if in keeping with the meticulousness of the Souvenir films, the house was constructed or or oh, no. found? I haven't read anything about that.
0: I don't know. And I mean, just based on viewing it, I would be a little surprised.
1: Yeah. It looks like it's a house somewhere. Yeah,
0: it it feels very lived in, very old. I mean, I know said designers can do anything, yeah. but uh it's also in a in a location that, you know, it's like a a very dark, foggy, moor kind of a place. Unnamed, nothing. That everything is very unspecific, and that adds to the kind of mystery and charm of it too, but I don't know, it's possible, maybe it's something to to look into. Well, we are almost at the end of our time. We all have screenings to run to. But I was wondering if anyone had like a quick shout out for something they've seen so far that they'd like to recommend.
2: I'd like to keep uh, blowing the horn for Dry Ground Burning, uh, which is a feature playing in Wavelengths here and premiered at uh, Berlin in the Forum section. To me, it is the movie of the year, uh, three hour docu epic about lesbian oil bandit sisters on the outskirts of Brasilia. Do they blow
0: up a pipeline? No, but I think this
2: film does have uh, the sort of political uh, nuance and urgency that you are yearning for. Mm. Oh,
0: good. Okay. Uh, We will talk about that film more for sure. Uh, Bedazri, Jordan, did you have any quick tiff tips, let's call them tiff tips?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I really loved this documentary called Casa Susanna. Mm. It's uh, about this resort in uh up by in Sebastian Cats- uh, yes. right? yes yeah. yes and it's up in the Catskills and this how this was like this venue for seemingly straight men with families and children to drive up to for weekends and just dress and live like women mm. and why I like it what I like the most about it is complicates that idea of are they straight are they trans are they what are they so mm. and like you know and most of these men had children wives who who pretty much drove them here because it's hard to drive with high heels and you know <laughs> stuff like that so I think it was very interesting and very emotional very straight. like you know it's it's not a world I grew up in or I relate too much but I really liked it and another film about the world I grew up in is Vinay Shukla's While We Watched mm-hmm. another documentary about the state of journalism in India, but it's a little different from writing with fire because it's not about grassroots journalism, but network journalism. Mm. It centers around uh, the NDTV um, journalist Ravish Kumar, but talks about the larger state of... Um, Who's
0: often regarded as like a bastion of... Yes, the last and bastion journalism.
3: of yeah. anti-government, unbiased um, journalism so it, it speaks to that larger idea of what happens to the state of journalism in a country when the government is completely anti-free speech or any kinds of free expression
0: mm. cool jordan
1: i'll recommend a tv show the new uh kingdom Lars von Trier's the kingdom uh is screening here and uh, i very much enjoyed it it's the third serious or third season uh, continuation of a uh, two-part series Vuncher made in the '90s, and this is—it's interesting. I mean, it's set in the same hospital that it, the original series was set, but it deals with the original series in a kind of fun way, where it's part of the show, and the p- characters in it know about the kingdom from the '90s, and they're they're kind of making fun of it and and how it's mm, affected it's their lives. Vep vibes. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> <Orma> <laughs> Um But it also, as most people probably know, Vuncher was recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I think right? Mm. Parkinson's. Or, Parkinson's. I sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, so he's nearing the end of his career, likely, and this has very, he is in it in interesting ways, I can say that without spoiling it. Okay. Um, And yeah, it's just, it's a fun return, but also sort of uh, feels like this could be like one of the last things he makes, so it's interesting, yeah.
0: Well, we'll talk about that more as well in in our TIFF podcasts, um, but that's a good rec. And I'll just say a few words for a movie I saw yesterday called Ashkal by Yusuf Shebbi, a Tunisian filmmaker, uh, just a movie that took me by complete surprise. Um, it's a noir detective story set in Tunisia. And it's about two police detectives, a young woman and like an older grizzled man, you know, that classic kind of noir crime thriller pair who are investigating what starts out as one incident of a man dying, you know, it's, it's sort of unclear that if he self-immolated or if he was set on fire, very mysterious circumstances But basically was found burned to death, that becomes a series of such incidents. And it it's not clear if it's murders or suicides and a lot of strange facts emerge. And at the same time, there's a kind of truth and uh, reconciliation type commission going on in the background. Uh, about police abuses during the tunisian di- dictatorship so the police are facing a lot of backlash from the public um while they're trying to solve this case and there's you know corruption and you know within the police and within the state uh, a desire to save their image while also trying to try to nail down this killer and it's i just you know it, it it's in some senses, very uh, classic noir, the way it's shot, the characters, you know, th- these familiar archetypes, which is what makes noir so delicious mm-hmm. to watch. It feels very familiar. It, but there is this angle that slowly emerges. There's like something slightly possibly mythological for folklorish mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. something specific to Tunisian politics at the moment, which I thought created something that you know, was just a very surprising hybrid of elements and something that felt really, really specific to uh, to the place where the movie comes from. And it's just beautifully shot, you know. It makes use of the landscape. Uh, these, these deaths, murders, what you call it, take place in these construction sites where a lot of sub-Saharan African, you know, immigrant workers work. And so it kind of draws on a lot of these local details just through its construction, not everything is narrativized or, you know, it's not a very plotty movie, even though it's, it's a, like a thriller, a detective thriller, but it's just so, uh, the details and the way it's shot, it's very atmospheric in, um, and it's, it stayed with me, the shots and the mystery, which really isn't solved by the end. And it really, it, I found it I'm still wrestling with, you know, what it might say and and what it could mean.
3: So I'll just shout that one out. That sounds fascinating. I'm going to put that on my list.
0: Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining. We covered so much ground. And thanks for helping kick off our TIFF series. And we'll be back with more podcasts later this week.
2: Thank you, Devika. Thank you. Thank
3: you. I couldn't have asked for a better debut. Mm-hmm.
0: Yay. Thank you. Good. <laughs>